Uh, let me uh, pray before we begin to look into God's word. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We ha you have revealed us to us yourself. You, you have also taught us and revealed how we are to live with one another. So we thank you for your word and pray that your word will have the mighty effect of converting our hearts and minds. And I pray that I will recede into the background, that your spirit will come into the foreground. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, it's good to be back, and um, I thank you for having me to uh, minister God's word. There are many different reasons that people choose a church. And in the United States, we are blessed with many churches. Um, so if you were to move to a new place, what would you look for in a church? How would you assess what is a good, healthy church? There's a graphic on the screen, and that's from a survey by National Association of Evangelicals. They do a monthly survey of uh, their evangelical leaders around, around the U.S. And that was a recent survey where they asked the leaders, uh, the American leaders, how would they prioritize choosing a church? And while there were a variety of answers, 80% of responses fell into these categories. The friendliness was the top, children's programs, worship music, thank you, Martins, and sermons, and the pastors was the last, sadly. <laughs> Which was interesting. Now, these are, these are good things to look for. Who wouldn't want a friendly church? But what does the Bible say as to what are a good set of characteristics or marks of a healthy church? And how should Christians view their Christian living? How ought they live in a, in a Christian community? So although the culture, the place, and the socioeconomic situation was quite different 2,000 years ago, we can learn a lot from the examples of the early church. So from today's passage in Acts 2, we can examine how these early Christians lived their Christian lives with one another and what they value in their church community. So before we get into today's passage, I want to take a few minutes to go back to the context of that situation and act that we read, Acts chapter 2. So after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, we read in Acts 1 that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples. Then he promised that the Holy Spirit will come after he ascends back to heaven. And at that time, there were only about 120 Christians, about 11, well, not, not a lot, about 11 disciples plus some of their friends. Then we come to the beginning of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost, which was during the week of what they call uh, the week of the, the week of the festival of the harvest. And because of this festival, there were Jewish pilgrims from all over the area. The, and the Pentecost event was a, was a wild event with the sound of mighty rushing wind, with tongues of fire on the gathered men and women. You can imagine, imagine tongues of fire. We would be rushing out with a fire extinguisher before we do anything else. And the disciples started speaking in tongues, actually in various local languages so that everyone could understand the message of the gospel 
in his or her own language. And then Peter, Apostle Peter, preached his first sermon to this uh, Jewish audience, recalling the prophecies about, the, about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And, but his message was extremely direct, that this Jesus was the man that you crucified and he is the Christ, the chosen one, the promised deliverer. And amazingly, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, 38 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41 tells us that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what did they do after they were converted? First, they were baptized. Most likely, they were hearing Peter's sermon at the Jerusalem temple, and there would have been a large pool outside the temple where they were able to get baptized. Baptism is an outward act of confession and obedience that one has now become a Christian. It's a visible sermon of the gospel and our testimony of our old self dying with Jesus and then being raised up to a new life with the resurrection of Jesus. So these new converts were identifying with Jesus' death and identifying the fact that Jesus is alive. At that time, such public declaration of faith, and as it actually is true in many of the many regions in the world today, it would have brought about persecution. And yet these early converts were willing. They were willing to be baptized and publicly declare they were, they were now new persons in Christ. So that's the context. And the second part of verse 141 tells us that they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they were added to the local church, the first and only church in Jerusalem at the time. So overnight, the first Christian church went from people, 120 people, to 3,000 people. It was the first mega church in the world. And the rest of our text tells us what their church life was like, how their practice served, potentially as a good model for us. Verse 42 tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they could have said that they were baptized and then went about their daily lives. No, their lives were now changed. The word devoted in verse 42 it's a pretty strong word. It means to seriously and earnestly persist in something. If I say I'm devoted to my family, it means that my family is a very high priority in my life, that I spend a lot of time, and I care a lot about their well-being. If you are devoted to something, it's not something that you do once in a while. It's something you are dedicated to it. These Jewish Christians may have been a religious Jews before, but traditions and rules never cause your hearts to change 
it never caused devotion. Unless you are a state trooper trying to catch speedy drivers, you're not devoted to rules. But the message of the Son of God who willingly gave himself for their sins changed their hearts and their devotions. They were attracted. They were attracted to the gentle heart of Jesus. And their newfound love for Jesus caused them to devote themselves to full, rather ordinary practice that we just read in verse 42. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the rest of time, we'll spend digging into each of these four practices, four ordinary practices of the early church. So first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, to the word of God. They were not interested in the latest philosophical or cultural ideas. They were interested in learning from God's word through apostles' teaching. How do they do that? Picture yourself in the history 2,000 years ago. The New Testament was not yet written. The printing press was not yet invented. They did not have Bible in their homes. So they had to meet physically and sit under the teaching of the apostles, who in turn were taught by Jesus. The apostles verbally shared what Jesus had taught them and how they can now understand the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. The apostles were, in a way, simply following what Jesus commanded them to do in Matthew 28, when he said, to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So as, early, as these early Christians devoted themselves to their teaching, it wasn't an occasional or even weekly attendance. Verse 46 says that they met every day, day by day, attended the temple together. They desired to hear God's word as often as they could, even if they had to go to the temple every day. They did not have a church building like ours, so the early church most likely gathered in the temple, in the Jerusalem temple, and because it was too large a group, they had to meet outside at an outdoor part of the temple. And then probably a small group, well, not probably, actually the scripture tells us they met also in small groups at their homes. So they practiced what they learned from the Old Testament where, for example, in Psalm 1, it tells us, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So one of the marks of a true conversion of the Spirit of God dwelling in a person is that he is hungry for God's word, hungry for good Bible teaching. He'll have the desire to hear, listen, to talk about, and to know more about what the Bible says. God has revealed himself to us in, in words. And Jesus himself is referred as the word. John 1, 1 says, referring to Jesus, I am the, uh, I'm sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
So when we become followers of Jesus and the Spirit of God dwells in us, it makes perfect sense that we want to read and study God's Word. A young man at our church shared with me that although he grew up going to a church and even was a part of a high school youth group and a college Christian fellowship, he realized that he was not a Christian until a few years after he started coming to our church. When he finally understood the gospel, he became a Christian. And he told me that after he became a Christian, one key difference in his life was that now he had hunger for God's word, to know what God had to say about himself and about how we are to live. Actually, this young man is now serving as a full-time youth director at our church. The early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They heard, learned, and studied, teach, studied apostles' teaching, and their lives were now being shaped by it. Their lives were being shaped by the Word of God. The gospel changed their devotion. I'm thankful, and I know I've shared with you, many of you that I used to be a member here about 35 years ago when we first moved here, and I'm thankful that CBC is committed to faithful teaching through the Bible. And brothers and sisters, I also personally devoted to God's Word. Is your life being shaped by what God is telling you in His Word? I know we have couple of high school students, I'll speak to the high school students. Are you devoted to God's word? Are you more devoted to Snapchat or Instagram or TikTok? Or to the opinions of your friends? If our culture says things that are contrary to the Bible, do we crack the Bible? Or do we re-examine what the culture says in light of what the Bible says? Studying God's word is not an optional follow for a follow of Jesus. If we want to know God, if we want to grow in our understanding of God, we need the Bible to show us God. The second, they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which is translate, translated as partnership or sharing. When we talk about fellowship, our typical use of fellowship is much weaker than what the author Luke meant in Acts as koinonia. Koinonia is not about having snacks and catching up on our lives, which I'm very glad for, which, and I'm looking forward to a time of fellowship, but it's not fellowship. Those are good things to do, but that's not what they were devoted to. In fact, it would be silly if they were devoted to potato trap chips and having donuts together. They were devoted to koinonia, that is partnership with one another's one another well-being. They were committed to devoting themselves to one another because now they have more in common with one another in their culture, their nationality, or their language. They had Jesus. Jesus was their Savior and their Lord. They had a joint commitment to follow this King, Jesus, together. 
So verse 45 tells us what this fellowship, what this partnership looked like. And it was quite radical. It was selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing, distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. As any had need. But this does not mean they have communal property ownership or communal living. And there have been in the past some cults who have misinterpreted this passage and thought that the Bible commanded us to do communal living. But that's wrong reading of the Bible. Since verse 46 tells us that they met in their homes, we can assume, for example, that they still have their own homes. No way in the Bible encourages us to have communal living. And the apostles were not commanding them to sell their goods and give to the common treasury. But they were voluntarily sharing their goods, their care for one another. They were under the Roman rule, so likely there were many who were poor. There was no government safety net. And some of them, by becoming Christians, would have been ostracized by the society and even by their own families. So it was imperative that they care for each other. We talked about a missionary in Colombia, but uh, for, uh, probably not so much in Colombia, but if you are, if you are a Christian in, a, a, in a, some of these persecuted countries, especially in the Middle East, when one becomes a Christian, they are rejected first and foremost by their own family as a betrayal of a culture and heritage. So often they are taken in by other Christian families to survive and to be protected. So as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the gospel doctrine, that is the gospel apostles' teaching, their lives were now being changed and they practiced radical generosity, especially towards one another. There's a pastor, uh, some of you may know, may have read his books, Pastor Ray Olin in uh, Tennessee. He says this, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace as Jesus himself touches us through his truth. Gospel doctrine is heard in a church and gospel culture is seen, a seen in a church. What does that look like for us? Most of us don't need to sell our property to meet one another's needs. So how are we bearing one another's burdens in our church? How do we inconvenience ourselves, our time, our wallet, for the blessing of our brothers and sisters? So a few practical examples or applications for us regarding this practice of fellowship. Even in, in our church, in CBC, there are likely some in our midst who have material needs, whether it's because of health issues or job transitions. And it is our collective responsibility to desire to care for and provide for those who are in need. Recently, we had a couple at our church in their 50s. The husband was a software engineer, and the man was very healthy, and suddenly had a heart attack and passed away. 
and just a few months ago, uh, early part of the summer, uh, in the midst of a very sad situation, it was beautiful to see various different members of our church come around this new widow and surround her with material and emotional support. And we are all to be sensitive to the needs of our brothers and sisters and serve them, whatever that might look like. Second way I think we can practice this fellowship is through the use of our time. Probably one of the most valuable resources for us is our time. And for many in CBC, the need may not be so much financial or material, but our willingness to spend time with one another, to meet for coffee, to go out for meals together, to spend time to see how they are really doing, what areas they may be struggling. When my wife and I were um, young Christians, and we were just married, and we were still students in Boston, and we belonged to a very, relatively small Bible-believing church uh, in the Boston area. And because we were young Christians, we didn't fully appreciate this at the time. But every Sunday after service, and I mean every Sunday, we were invited to a dinner at one of the homes of an older couple. Sometimes I had to we had to decline. So I have an exam tomorrow, so I really need to go back uh, to my dorm or our apartment. But they were very generous offering their homes and their lives to us. And we were able to learn how godly marriage looks like, how they raise their children, what they do regarding their career. And these were valuable discipleship lessons that we received by watching the older couples. So hospitality, sharing our lives with one another, is one important way of encouraging and discipling one another one important way of fellowship. In our church membership class, we, we usually have membership class for maybe three or four times a year. We just had one a couple of months ago. And we often ask the new folks how they started to come to our church. And they usually tell us that our, well, some friend recommended or they found us on the web. Uh, and when we ask, well, why did you stay? Did you visit other churches? The most common answer is because someone invited them for a meal or took them out for a coffee or, or dinner. Sadly, actually, I was uh, talking to another friend uh, who moved from our church to uh, another city. And uh, I, I was uh, asking them, how are you doing? Have you settled on a church? He said, Che, I've been going to this church for two years. I've never been invited to their home. So uh, he was just very sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, breaking bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. The phrase breaking of bread likely meant the Lord's Supper or communion. Luke was most likely recalling how Jesus asked his disciples to remember him through the bread and the wine when they gather. And it seems that for practical reasons, they did the breaking of bread at homes. Remember, there were about 3,000 new believers, and so it was just probably not practical, especially if they were meeting outdoor part of the temple to have this communion. 
So verse 46 tells us that they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And it's quite likely the communion meal was followed by a real meal because they were meeting in the homes. <clears throat> and as they broke their bread together in their home, just as we do in our churches, they were remembering Jesus. 1 Corinthians, which is on the screen, verse 10, 16, Paul tells us the cup of blessing that we bless is in not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. They came expecting to be in the spiritual presence of Jesus, to hear his words through the words that they read or they were taught, to see him with the eyes of their hearts and to be reminded of his love. As they tasted the bread, they remembered that the Son of God took on the body and became a man to take the punishment for their sins. And as they tasted the sweetness of the wine, they would remember and remind each other the sweetness of having their sins forgiven because Jesus poured out his blood for us. And this was such an important part of their worship that they devoted themselves to it. They would not miss it. The communion meal is a visible, tangible sign of God's grace. Important reminder of what Jesus has done, his crucifixion, his resurrection. In our church, we used to do communion every other week. Um, but just a couple of years ago, we, as we were coming out of COVID, uh, we decided to change to doing it every week because we felt we need this reminder because we are forgetful. We need a reminder of the gospel, a visible reminder of God's grace for us. So we do it every week now. Prayers. So they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Given the definite article, the, the prayers, most likely these early Christians were praying known prayers, such as the verses from the book of Psalms. But they also likely pray, pray other prayers. The book of Acts tells us that they pray for boldness in the midst of persecution. They pray for Peter to be rescued when he was imprisoned by the King Herod. In Acts 16, we see that the women gather for prayer meetings in the city of Philippi. Notice that often it's the women that gather for prayer meetings. The early Christians were praying people because they needed to depend on God. They had a sense of desperation. It's also interesting to note that when prayers are mentioned in the book of Acts, it's often a group of people praying together. We might say the whole Christian movement started with a prayer meeting of the disciples after the ascension. After seeing Jesus ascend to heaven, the disciples returned to Jerusalem, went up to the upper room, and Acts 1.14 tells us, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They prayed for 10 days, and the Holy Spirit came, and 3,000 people were saved. These early 
believers continued to pray, praising God for the work that he was doing. Christianity is a work of God, so we need to depend on God and do his work. The Bible tells us to pray always and encourages us to pray together. As our sister was uh, saying earlier about praying for the missionary, prayer is uniquely glorifying to God because in prayer we express our dependence on him, whether during good times or bad times. And our God knows how to give good, give good gifts to his children far more than we can ask. <clears throat> 20th century uh, theologian and pastor Warren Wearsby encouraged us that the deepest Christian fellowship and joy we can experience in this life is at the throne of grace, praying with and for one another. For one another. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the growth of Christian movement in, in the country of small country in Korea. Uh, Korean churches grew very rapidly during the last 100 years. And one key practice of every Christian church that I know in Korea is that they have early morning prayer meetings every day from 6 to 7, typically, or 5.30 to 6.30. So they would gather together to read the Word of God together and pray for the nations, pray for the persecuted churches, pray for their missionaries, pray for their leaders, and pray for one another. So if you know of like immigrant, church, immigrant Korean church, even in New York, 99% of the time, they would have early morning prayer meeting every day. And because that just became the practice for, for the Korean churches. And sadly, for most churches, including our church in New Hope, prayer meetings are usually the least popular meetings. And so I do hope that we collectively would change that, that we would gather to pray together, pray for one another, Pray for God to bring revival into our nation. So let's devote ourselves to prayer as the early Christians did. Together as church, together with your spouse, with your children, with one another. My wife and I do a lot of marriage uh, mentoring or counseling. And one of the first things that we ask, do you pray together? That's typically a good sign whether they are on a good path or not. So in summary, here's a picture of what the early Christian church looked like. They loved to hear the teaching of God's word. They loved sharing life with and caring for one another. They enjoyed hearing the gospel story, seeing the gospel story in the breaking of bread together and worshiping their Lord and Savior together. And for all these things, they needed to depend on God, so they prayed and pray. And what was the result of such a devoted Christian life? The healthy Christian life in the early church resulted in awe and attraction by outsiders in addition to the church. Verse 43 tells us that all came upon every soul. All or their respectful fear of God came because they learned about the most wonderful story of Jesus and his resurrection, that this is a Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. 
This Jesus took the punishment for the sins of the whole world, for my sin, to rescue me from my own sins, and then was resurrected. You see, when that beautiful truth of the gospel sinks in, it will cause us to be in awe. As the hymn goes, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And we don't need to manufacture this all by putting on a show. Gospel creates the all. The fear of the magnificent God. And people were attracted by what they saw in the Christian church. Verse 47 says that they were having favor with all the people. When others saw the early Christian Christians, <clears throat> when others saw the early Christians were sacrificially giving themselves to one another, this attracted others. Normal human tendencies are to care for ourselves. And when people go out of their way to care for others, people take notice. When Christians do good to one another, the world takes notice and are attracted by it. When we act in faith and consistent with the gospel, the world takes notice. Last week, we had a, uh, someone visit our church uh, who's not a believer, just someone who heard about our church. And, um, you know, you ended up meeting with a number of people. Uh, afterwards, he sent an email to our church office and said, I want to join the church. I think he thought he, you pay a membership and join membership. Fee. He said, I, I saw the community, and it seems like you guys live what you teach, and I want to be in a community like that. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture in the community. And finally, verse 47 the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Note that it is the Lord who added. We cannot control the outcome. Early Christians were faithful, and God added to their numbers. It's God who convicted and saved people, and those who were added to their number. We have to remember it's God that does the work. We can be faithful but God has the numbers. Brothers and sisters, that's our desire and prayer for this church, for the community of saints at CBC. Our church prays for you often um, during our elder meetings and in our congregation, during our service. And we pray that we will be a faithful church, loving the Bible, loving one another, loving worship, and loving to turn to God in prayer. And may the Lord continue to use CBC to convict and save our neighbors, our friends, our family members, and add to our numbers daily.